Amanda here. In today's book club episode, we discuss themes such as friendship, compassion, and the line between genius and madness through Simon Winchester's The Professor and the Madman. We end with an elegant yet rousing word game. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Trisha. I'm Amanda. I'm Elizabeth. And welcome to Book Fair Podcast. Do you love books or do you want to? Are you tired of picking up the latest new release and finding it's filled with junk you don't want in your life? Has motherhood somehow made your brain a dusty shamble? Friend, you are in the right place. We are three friends and mamas on a mission to create a fun bookish community pursuing a deeper life through the reading life. We are your trusted source for books of all flavors. Always grounded in truth, goodness, and beauty. So if you're ready for scrumptious literary fare among friends, grab your cup of coffee, your load of laundry, or the steering wheel, and pull up a seat at the table. Okay, it's review time. I want to share with y'all a sweet review that we got in. And remember that we are reading these reviews to share with you not how great we are, but an example of ways to spread the word. If you enjoy this podcast, if you do not enjoy this podcast, keep it to yourself. (laughs) If you do enjoy it, we would love for you to go onto your Apple app. And leave us a review. And so Abby Lynch said, an uplifting, fun, heartfelt discussion of books and life. Love it. Thank you, Abby, so much. And if you want to go on and write us a review, we're going to put your name in a drawing for some book fair swag. Thank you, Abby. And maybe you will be the lucky winner of a book fair mug. We will see. Okay. So... Book Club Today, The Professor and the Madman. This was my second reading. Oh my goodness. My trusty Goodreads informed me that I read it for the first time six years ago. And that was actually helpful to me because I felt like I'd forgotten so much of it. So I was like, okay, it's been six years. That's 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 acceptable. So what did you guys think? You hadn't read it before, right? Yeah. No, I'd never read it before. And I didn't even know that it was a movie that had come out a few years me ago. Me either. <laughs> I feel like I usually know about movies that are from books. I usually know about those, but I, in looking up some stuff to just what do I want to say on this episode, I was like, oh, well, here I am completely done with the book and didn't realize it was a movie. And it had some of my favorite people, so I'll probably go check it out. I thought it was just almost a story that can't happen today, but I don't know if I think that's true or not. It just, there was so much about it that marks the time. Hmm. Mm-hmm. that it was in. And so it was glimpses in several directions that really didn't even have to do with the book, but that marked where this was mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. I love noticing that. Tell me more about what you mean by that. That's a really interesting observation. Um, I wish I would gone through it and written it as I, as, as I read, because this is something I kind of thought about after the fact that I kept having just, I think it was maybe with a frame of mind I was in, I was noticing things like trains and correspondence and thinking about how long that would take to go back and forth. And my mind took really forever to wrap around like, why did we need this dictionary? Because the (laughs) idea of dictionary was but it's because I'm so accustomed to the idea of dictionary yeah. and and we have moved past the idea of a handheld volume 
you know, multiple volumes take to complete the set of a dictionary because we're in the internet world. It took my brain so many steps to go back to remember what if you did not have a list of words? Yeah. And what if you did not have a handle on what your language actually was? And their idea, what they were trying to say we need, they didn't call it a canon. What did they call it? They wanted to cement the language, which in their wisdom of seeing the need for it, they also still weren't totally understanding that that language would never be cemented. Like, it's so different today even from then. So... It was that idea of we're suddenly rushing into modern times with amazing things. And yet this was so long ago when you look at just the way they lived their lives, the way they interacted, the way they had to form this list. And, you know, I, I'm still amazed that he, I really want to know what his diagnosis is, but that's probably for later in the discussion. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Same here. This was my first read and that was really a mental shift for me because I have never, I had never thought about that there was a time before dictionaries in the- It was mind blowing. Close, you know, in the modern world. Yeah. So This I wasn't like the 1200s. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> I've never wondered about that. And that blew my mind. And I thought it was so interesting. And when he was talking about that part in the book, Shakespeare- Milton and the list of the greatest writers ever <laughs> to write in English were before a dictionary. And it reminds me, you know, of Lewis's concept of chronological snobbery, how we think we're the best because we are now, <laughs> and how much people accomplished with so much less. And think about building the pyramids and they didn't have our heavy building machinery or the engineering degrees that we have now. And on and on. You could go on and on with examples like that. But it just really blew my mind. I actually kind of this wanted to go back to the time of Shakespeare when no one could look in a dictionary and tell you you spelled anything wrong. <laughs> All right. That would be really good oh for me. Oh, my goodness. Those people are the worst. <laughs> I am a terrible but speller. I always have been. And, you know, I have learned that it is a visual skill. And so it's just my brain doesn't do it well. And I've just accepted that. And of course, with spell check, it's so much easier than it used to be. Um, but when I, they were talking about Shakespeare, and literally, he's no one could come and say, you spelled this wrong. Because there wasn't a or list anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, I have this running commentary in my mind that say handrails don't make us safer. They make us dumber. Hmm. And it's kind of like a, like a metaphor for a whole rabbit trail of a conversation that somebody can have coffee with me and talk about. But this really cemented that in even further because now when we have more resources, we use less words. Hmm. Shakespeare did not have all this and he, he used, I mean, what is the number? His vocabulary was like three or four times the size of the average today person's vocabulary. Yeah. I saw that he invented 1,700 words. I don't know if that's correct. Well, maybe he was just making them up and that's why. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's, why we, needed, vocabulary. Maybe that's <laughs> why we needed the Oxford Dictionary right. so people would quit making up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been Shakespeare back then. Now that's what I know. <laughs> Never mind. 
Well, something else that I really liked about the book, a couple of things, like this is maybe our third historical narrative we've read on Book Fair. Mm-hmm. And something that I have liked about all of them is they they do the thing where they're telling a small story, but it's embedded in a fleshed out, very broad context. I love yep. that. And he mm-hmm. did this too. And something else that I really liked about it is that he echoes things about Murray and the dictionary in his writings. Like he would start a chapter with a definition, for yeah. example. Yeah, and, I loved that. Yeah. And Murray, he talked about loved, how people in his life were connected to other people or other times or historical figures. And then the author goes on to connect Murray himself to other historical or well-known people that we would know to also contribute to a broader world context. I thought that was so clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And another thing about this book is I never thought about what makes a good definition. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote down the part of the book where he goes through and explains that. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. Ah, and so you're like, I'm going to, my kids might need funny? to benefit well, from I just this thought, for their, yeah, or just in general thinking. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. Huh. Like all words in the definition must be known and less complicated than the defined word. Less all words used in the definition must be found in the same dictionary. The definition must say what it is, not what it is not. There, mm-hmm. If there's a broad range of meanings, they must all be stated separately. They must be concise, elegant. By the way, <laughs> it was a more elegant time. And they, they used the was. word elegant. I wish we <laughs> there were more elegance <laughs> today and we actually used the word elegant. <laughs> and in addition to the definition, they included the etymology, the pronunciation, and a quotation. One sentence from literature for each century, the word was in use, unless a very right. fast-changing <sighs> word, and then more quotations were used to suggest the shades of its quickly changing meanings <laughs> without uh, was... Microsoft Excel. I'm just saying. <laughs> no databases or anything. No, it is completely it is completely mind-blowing, the amount of work mm-hmm. that went into this. I mean... That's why it took 70 years. <laughs> Well, one might say the guy trying to undertake this was actually the madman. <laughs> like, what a crazy <laughs> idea. Like, I had a thought of, like, who's the professor and who's the madman? Because they both, and maybe that's why they formed that friendship of, I wondered if he had a moment where he was like, I don't know, I'm like a step away from this. I'm obsessed with this dictionary that, that's like Noah building the ark at that time. Yeah. Like, you're doing what? <laughs> you know? Well, and he talks about... Like his front matter for the book was at the end, at least in my audiobook I was listening to. And so he does talk about the diagnosis of schizophrenia and how yeah. today mm-hmm. he would have been medicated for that. And although you wouldn't wish someone to go through what he went through, we also might not yeah. have gotten his genius yeah. at the same time. And you do think about, you know, it is known that particularly boys in schools, tend to be overdiagnosed for things like ADHD. Yeah, it brought that up. Yeah, and too. I just I have thought that for a long time that we are just medicating our creative geniuses, you yeah. know, out of the picture. <laughs> you know? 
Well, and truly, sometimes our creative geniuses are dangerous. And so it's not that it's a simple do or do not yep. for any mm-hmm. of this. But mm-hmm. but there might be a hidden cost to some of, I mean, he did murder somebody. Right. You know, but, but. No, he was a truly. But I did truly, think of that too. He was a truly dangerous person. Yes. And mm-hmm. there was, like today, there was a lot of clear madness going on leading up to the murder like Mm -hmm. today if he would have had family and friends watching him Mm -hmm. they would have gotten him help before he murdered someone yeah um because it was very clear you know we're not talking about adhd yeah right and i'm not meaning to equate adhd with something like schizophrenia or how we should approach it but i'm just saying it's known that perhaps people are diagnosed when maybe they don't need that diagnosis and medication that no, it's, it's well or it's, it's a a, different if they do need it even there is a cost mm-hmm. in in that mm-hmm. yeah i mean even if they did need it it's a valid yeah. valid question and i actually think it's one of the themes of the book is that kind of fine line between insanity and genius mm, yeah and that still is a question that is with us today at what point are we treating or medicating people who in times past yes they might have had ways in which they suffered some more but it also let loose their genius i mean how how many stories are there of the great geniuses artists writers of past times who had that you know typical suffering artist story who had that typical suffering artist kind of story i mean what what if we would have medicated van gogh you know, mm-hmm. you, you you think about that. And like you said, it answers, the, it, it, it raises a very valid question of are we over medicating our geniuses today? It's a valid question. I heard someone with ADHD who's very, very successful person talk about how he has learned to cope with it. And I'm not saying that everybody that has ADHD could do this or should, or, you know, I'm just saying this is his story because he says his brain has to think this way for him to get to this idea or that connection, whatever. And it's interesting because we've talked about personalities and temperaments and we've sprinkled in there a little bit about the creative process and how sometimes it can just be really wacky. So interesting. And my husband composes music and when he gets music in his mind, it is really hard for him to think about anything else. Hmm. He's learned ways to cope with it, but it really like he hears it. Hmm. And it's hard for him to think through the noise. So he has learned some ways to cope with that when he's at work. But when he comes home, he's like, I've got a song in my head. I have to get it out. You know, so he'll go and close the door and, and work on that. But it's really fascinating process to me. But, you know, it's, it's a little different. I also really liked about the book that <clears throat> he included somewhat of an what we would call an origin story, you know, or a possible origin story. I mean, this boy, well, I guess he was young, but not a boy, but in the Civil War, you know, anytime that we can look back on a war that we know a lot of history about and go, and here's one tiny, I mean, because you know, the ripple effect is just far and wide. There was not a family that was not touched yeah. multiple times over. And and there's still so much we don't know about mental illness of was this genetic or was this born in that moment of trauma? We still don't know that today. But I kind of thought, yeah, that would 
that would possibly do it for me. I mean, that was truly awful, especially when you consider the Hippocratic Oath and what he'd really, truly believed about it. Um, I thought it was so wise for the author to put that in there. Almost as something that maybe gave you a little bit of gentle empathy for this story. Yeah, for sure. So what was your impression of James Murray as a character? I mean, he's a historical figure, but in the book, you know, he's, he's a character in the book. I thought he was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Just to undertake something like this, even thinking it might be a 10 year project. <laughs> of course, nobody knew how long it would take. I mean, anybody that can look at the world and say, we need this. That's step one of a really great thing. But often that person is not the one that is able to follow through and make it happen. The fact that he did both, I thought was really impressive. I mean, I have great ideas all the time and they immediately just go out with the trash <laughs> because I don't know how to make them happen. And especially something that the world had not yet seen. Um, I mean, that was, that was about the part where I started thinking like maybe he had a little madness in him too. I mean, that kind of almost crazed focus because and I say crazed only just because that was not a normal thing in our world an idea of a word list that went for years yeah. I mean you worked 70 years on a word list essentially but when you believe in some real reasons about why it might be necessary or what it might give to our culture or how it might mark the time I mean that was that was really beautiful to me yeah, I got the impression of just a really good, solid, grounded, kind man. Yeah, me too. And I think in the movie, uh, Mel Gibson does a good job of portraying that, of him just really? being a good human being. And I think that's one of the things that makes this story like endearing to me. It's, it's sometimes hard for me to read a book if you feel like everyone in the book is, quote, you know, bad or unsympathetic. Like you want to have someone to root for. And I really wanted to root for him. Yeah. Like he just seemed like an amazing person that, like you said, Elizabeth, kind of took up the call for this important thing and then sacrificed so much of his life to mm -hmm. bring it into reality because he believed in it for the culture, for the literary world, for education, for all of those things. And he was so uniquely equipped to do it. I love languages. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I only semi speak one other language. I was a Spanish major, and then I haven't used it much. So I've lost a lot of it. But I majored in it just because I loved it. Like I loved learning another language. And I've often thought like if I could just go off somewhere and just be a student, I would love to be a linguist and learn multiple languages. And someone like that, that just was so could just pick them up and by age 20 spoke what like <sighs> 10 or 12 languages and then by the time he was 30 I mean he it's incredible the number of languages this man spoke and so that kind of prodigious genius for language and then for him to take all of that and pour it into this project there's just something so inspiring about that yeah I talking about rooting for him I felt the same way and that he ended up with, you know, his first wife having died and then his second wife. Seems like they just had a, seems like they had a really solid relationship, really healthy and supportive. Yeah. And the kids yeah. got involved and they had a ton of kids and they helped with the process. And it was a really family 
endeavor. And of course, that's every homeschooler's dream, right? Is to have a family business, get an RV, and travel the Are country. We all? <laughs> the two year olds cranking out word lists along with everybody that's else. That's right. Um, I was kind of thinking about like what would make you think that cause was important. And when you said kind, Trisha, I think you have to care about people understanding each other and conversations getting somewhere instead of people talking at each other. I mean, the idea is that we would have less wars if we had more conversation. Well, we have to be able to understand each other to do that. Um, that kind of came up to me like you you're someone who really believes I don't want to just talk to you I want you I want us to understand each other yeah and I'll just say whoever came up with sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me was false (laughs) (laughs) that is false (laughs) we all know the tongue is a fire right it can set a whole forest ablaze we see you James chapter three (laughs) The power of words. Absolutely. All right. So let's move on to Dr. Minor. Such a fascinating picture of a fascinating life. I mean, coming away from the book and, and having just finished it, what what do you guys feel about him? Oh, just compassion, honestly. Yeah. Like he's just trying to do this work in the daytime and, and we know that work is good. Work feeds us. Work is what we, we were made to do that. And so when you're taken out of your place, but then you still find a way that you can work and contribute, but you are in war in your mind just all the time. But it seemed like, especially at nights. I mean, his night seemed awful. Yeah. And, and then to just, you know, I think about, I have a rough night's sleep and I'm like, I can't do my jobs today. I don't know laundry. I don't know homeschooling, but he's like off to make the offer Oxford dictionary. You know, I mean, maybe that was the thing that grounded him in some ways, I even think. But when I look at what he did while he was battling and what he was battling, I just so much compassion. And then especially the way he painted him just shriveling up with time. Mm. You know, his brain did not let up even when his body was. Mm. I felt really bad for little minor, you know, when he was younger. Yes. I really, I don't know. I just wonder if he had some kind of abuse happen that his parents didn't know about or, you know, to him. I think so too. I think that had to have happened um, because you don't. The nature of his struggles spoke to pot. Yeah. as a mama, yeah. I wondered about yeah. that. And so my heart breaks broke for the little guy. And then I was like, why did he go into medicine? <laughs> when, But that's looking back after knowing how his life went. Mm-hmm. And he was also a polyglot, like Murray, and very academic and studious in that way. Um, and maybe if he had known that about himself earlier... And gone in a different direction with his studies, he wouldn't have even been in that place and in the middle of a battlefield and having to do these things to people. So that was kind of a heartbreaking angle for me. I felt like Winchester wrote about him with a lot of compassion. Um, I feel like compassion is actually one of the great themes of this book. And you know, we talk about reading being a source of empathy. And I feel like this is a great book for... Mm teenagers to read 
you know, not only does it give an interesting picture of a historical time, but I think it's written with so much empathy for Minor while frankly discussing his journey and his struggles and the awful things that he did. Like they, it doesn't gloss over that, but it treats him with so much compassion. And I just really appreciated that. And it's just such a clear case of true insanity. I mean, even way back then, there were so many people that were hanged or, you know, sentenced for life when we today would say that they were clearly insane. I mean, even the Victorians were like, this dude's insane. <laughs> they just yeah. had his and- landlady in to talk about, you know, how he every morning was like, the Irish have broken into my apartment, you know, and tortured <laughs> me and forced me to drink poison. And, you know, they could clearly tell even back then. So his sentence of not guilty, but then needing to be, you know, a ward of the state, I think was just, um, but I think if there is a villain of this piece, it's the guy that took over the asylum and was so mean to him. Yeah. That made me so yeah. angry. Dr. Brain needed to rearrange his brain. <laughs> this is a funny name there. Dr. Brain. <laughs> I know. I, I did think short of that man, he received more compassion from his peers. And I mean, the wife of the man that he murdered forgave him. I I was shocked for Victorian era that he got as much compassion as he did. Because really, it was just the one doctor where my impression would have been that he wouldn't have even got the sentence that he did, that he would have just been sentenced to death. And that would have been it. And we don't really have time to care if you're mentally ill or not. But yeah, I was very upset with Dr. Brain because I had gotten used to him kind of being taken care of, even though, and then he comes along and you're like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. That was so sad. And the way they talked about how that was like, really when he started to decline, because he, like you were talking about Amanda, they took away his work and his Mm -hmm. purpose. And it was just, it was so sad. And then it took years. Mm-hmm. It took years. I can't remember how many off the top of my head. Was it like eight years or something before they got him out of there? I mean, because it was such a slow moving system. Mm-hmm. And you just, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a long time. Yeah, it is. Especially when you're doing nothing. Yeah. So what other themes or, you know, connections did you guys find in this book? I loved thinking about how this big brick of a book or just you know several bricks dictionaries in general yeah this one in particular many volumes of bricks of just paper and ink that that represent words which represent ideas how you can take a tool like that and use it to weave together the most beautiful prose and poetry that it's Mm. art it's the tools of an artist. And I enjoyed thinking about that. I, I thought about why words are important and language. And Bryce is learning in debate. The first thing you do is define your terms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that words just have meaning and that is important. Or we can't communicate effectively and efficiently. And Thomas Jefferson said the most valuable of all talents is that of never using two words when one will do. <laughs> So just being precise and efficient with your words is a lost art. (laughs) And just the idea that words and ideas, how they're woven together, that it's hard to actually have thoughts, to be able to think and to imagine if you don't have words. You know, studies done with people born deaf and 
mute and that kind of thing. And the power of ideas and words. Winston Churchill said, you see these dictators on their pedestals surrounded by the bayonets of their soldiers and the trenches of their police. Yet in their hearts, there's unspoken, unspeakable fear. They are afraid of words and thoughts. Words spoken abroad, thoughts stirring at home, all the more powerful because they are forbidden. These hmm. terrify them. A little mouse, a tiny little mouse of thought appears in the room, and even the mightiest potentates are thrown into panic. I love that quote. Isn't that that good? is amazing. <laughs> I'm going to have to write it down. That's a really great one. Right? Yeah. Well done, Amanda. Oh, thanks. I just have one more to throw in. Oh, two more real quick. Lord Byron <laughs> said, but words are things and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions think. Hmm. And Trisha, the poetry you've been reading, was it Cahil Gibran? Mm -hmm. I thought so. He said from sand and foam, all our words are but crumbs that fall down from the feast of the mind. I've read that one. Oh, good. Mm. I like it. The feast of the mind. Beautiful. I think one of my favorite themes was friendship. Mm. That these two men yeah. were truly friends and that they had a friendship before Murray even knew he was insane. That. Mm -hmm. Their correspondence over this project and their shared talents and shared genius in that realm created a bond and a friendship. And then, you know, he goes, he talks about, you know, this first meeting and how there's been romanticized versions. And then he kind of gives what he thinks is the most historically accurate version of their first meeting. But I understand why there are romanticized versions because it's just oh, such yeah. a beautiful idea that this, you know, great giant of the literary scene and of this huge project of Victorian England winds up going to this lunatic asylum to meet this man and their friends. And it's just, there's something that is so beautiful and redemptive about that. Well, it's recognizing what someone contributed, no matter who they are, because people are complicated. And you say, you know, your work has established who you are to me, so I can take the rest. Yeah. You know, at that time, I think it would have been really common to suddenly kick him off the project or revisit. I don't even know if we can use all the words he's done, even though he's done the most of them, just because that was something we still kind of put in the back closet. Yeah. But he honored like, you know, I, I already know who you are. You are a person of value and you have some other struggles and I can sit with that. Yeah. Yeah. When I read that part, I just was like, it was like a... <laughs> Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks meeting in the park at yes. You've Got Mail. Like they've had this correspondence, yes. and and it's friendship, not love, and it's not a silly romantic comedy. But the the anticipation for me was about that level of like, and it was not a disappointment. Yeah. It was okay that you were the way you were, and I'm the way I am. Yeah, yeah, that was a really beautiful light woven through the book. That though some yeah. parts were tough and uncomfortable uh, to yeah. read about, but this was a really, and I'm glad Minor had this in his life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I will say about the movie, because I watched it, I think about a year ago. My library has it. Um, the movie is like sadder 
I felt like more sad and more kind of disturbed because obviously in a movie, they're kind of playing up the drama of the madness and the suffering and, and all of that. And so, you know, when I read this book, like you said, there were a couple of parts that you're like, Oh, this is, you know, it's hard to read this. It's hard to read about self mutilation and, you know, some of the things that yep. happened. And you're oh, man, like, oh. I forgot about that part. Oh, yeah. man. Y'all imagine, <laughs> I'm not going to say too much. I want to be in good taste, but y'all imagine me texting Trisha and being like, so this happened and she just was like, what are you talking about? Because she, I had started the book and she had it and I referenced the mutilation and she was like, what are you saying to me right now? I was like, what are you talking about? She was like, it's in Professor and the Madman. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> it was classic. Elizabeth starts a new subject in the middle of nothing. And a weird one. <laughs> Oh, and the fish that it referenced. That's from yes. the book, The River of Doubt. Yes, a Candace Millard book. We read another one of hers. You can go check out that episode if you haven't. That Destiny book, of the Republic. Thank you. Destiny of the Republic. And we, she says she has another one uh, that she wrote called The River of Doubt, which is about Teddy Roosevelt's journey down the Amazon after he was president. And this fish made an appearance there too. Oh, what is up with this fish? It's appearing everywhere now. <laughs> you read enough, you find connections everywhere, even to obscure Amazon fish that can swim up streams of urine. Even then, you will find a connection. <laughs> so my other favorite sort of theme of this book, or maybe... Maybe it's more of a takeaway than a theme for me. Um, is just that to me, the Oxford English Dictionary is such a great example of a great project of modernity. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about modernity coming in and man essentially deciding, man, you know, in general, humanity, that we can solve all the world's problems by science and logic and categorizing everything and putting everything in their rightful boxes. And now we can, we can create all of these things, all of these great buildings and bridges and those kind of things. And we're going to be able to get rid of all the illness and we're going to be able to eliminate poverty. I mean, it was really interesting reading Les Mes this summer because there were parts of that book where Hugo, I mean, he basically states, now that we're here, if we will just, mm -hmm. if we will just put our enlightenment into action, through modernity, we, we will solve all these problems. Like he truly believed that within a hundred years in France, poverty could be solved if the powerful would just truly want it to happen. Engage in the conversation. Engage in the conversation, want it to happen, and put the lessons of modernity into action. And this was a perfect example of a project of modernity. We can wrap our arms around this language if we put smart enough men on it for long enough. And like you said at the beginning, they even thought they could sort of crystallize it and define it <laughs> and make it stay. And they quickly realized that was impossible because language is always moving, moving and growing and developing. And, and that's impossible. But at the beginning, they really thought they could. And the reason I think this is such an amazing example of a project of modernity is that is it a great achievement? Yes. Is it a wonderful tool? Yes. Has it helped education and literature? Was it a huge step forward in the English language? 
Yes. I mean, if you even ask the question, ought it to have been done? Hmm. Yes. I mean, I think they prop. I think it was a good step forward. It had a lot of practical application. It was a good thing. But just like other projects of modernity, can you ever completely wrap your arms around something mm-hmm. like a language and define it all perfectly and have a perfect TikTok? The game is locked. This is it. <laughs> no. No. You can't. <clears throat> and. It reminded me of spiritual projects of the time in the 17th and 18th centuries where people said, essentially, we are so smart now. If we just put the Bible through the logic machine and come up with all the right rules, we can Mm -hmm. wrap our arms around this and finally have unity and solve all the problems of biblical interpretation. And that's never going to happen. The Bible was never intended to be a TikTok, the game is locked. You can put You can make a rule for everything. You can put it through the logic machine and come up with every right way to do everything. There is always going to be some mystery and some gray area of application. And people are always never going to agree perfectly on exactly what things mean. It's not going to happen. And so I kind of... that's why the subject is great. Right. That's (laughs) why it's a great subject. Yeah. Okay. So you had me scared just a little bit when you first started this monologue. (laughs) to your face (laughs) and that was such a beautiful monologue there Trisha that was fantastic that though this is a great feat of modernity it was still humbling yes 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 and uh I will say have we had any writers post-dictionary better than Dickens Shakespeare Milton Mm. Austin, kind of like what you were saying, Elizabeth, back to the beginning, the handrails. I am thankful for the dictionary. I I'm, have marveled even more after reading this book. So I'm not downplaying that at all. It's a great question, Amanda. But- <laughs> I'm going to think about that. I am. Yeah. I do think it's interesting. The only books that I know of that the language was written before the book, the book was written around the language was Lord of the Rings. Because Tolkien was a philologist and he created a language first and a world. And then he's like, okay, yeah, let's make a, a, a mythology for, for the Brits, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. All right, Amanda, you sent us a little teaser text this morning and said you had an idea for a game. I'm a little bit nervous. You're wanting to spring a game on us. So here you go. <laughs> well, this is a book club and we do like to bring in games. For In Real Life Book Club. And so it dawned on me just this morning, I wonder what new words have been added to the diction- to the Oxford English Dictionary even this year. Hmm. So, Oh, continually growing. Yes. So I would like to give you a word. And if one of you can come up with an approximate correct definition, you get a point. yes yes i'm in let's go now i have six of them and these were just pulled out by reader's digest so there's many other words that have been added and i was a little disillusioned to see that so many of these have to do with pop culture hint for you to help you in the game okay i'm in okay (laughs) ready okay whoever (laughs) shouts it out first correct gets it okay All right. Crash diet. 
a sudden impulse, not impulse, but a sudden diet where you just are all in today, right now, and you probably are going to change it next week. Almost. Okay. It depends (laughs) on what Trisha says. Who gets a point here? (laughs) Oh, okay. I get a chance to better the definition. If you want to jump in, yeah. To try to to create an elegant definition. (laughs) Um, For crash diet. We need elegance (laughs) here. (laughs) A sudden... Not very well thought out eating plan that is extreme and short-lived. Okay. That's tough. That was very similar. I'm going to give you both a point um, because I think you both went in the same direction in, in general. It says a diet intended to result in very rapid weight loss through severe Uh. restrictions on calories intake over relatively short period of time. So you got, you both got the short period of time part. All right. Well done. It's tied one to one (laughs) after one question. All right. Second word, DAP. Math is hard. (laughs) Not DAB, D-A-B, but DAP, D-A-P. Oh, isn't it like a, like to tap or to, oh, come on. I've heard the kids say this. You've almost got it. It's something that is... No, that was dab. That was the hand move that the football you were almost, players did. You were on the right track, though. But is it like a tap? I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah, it's a casual. Well, Trisha hasn't gone. Yeah, a casual. No, I didn't. I didn't know no, that one. No, give me some dab. It's like fist bumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could tell with her hand motions. I could tell that's where she was going. A casual gesture of greeting, acknowledgement, <laughs> or affirmation. Typically involving yeah. slapping palms, bumping fists, or snapping fingers. What is that? Hey, like a high five how are you doing? Hey, yeah. that's kind of weird, but all right. Because <laughs> they it. say they say, "Give me some dap." Give me some dap. Give me some dap. <laughs> all right, two to one. Next word. Final girl. This no is idea. more of a, a phrase, a term than a word, but. No idea. Is this the one? Is it the one you marry? I mean, not everybody has the same ideas about marriage. No, good guess. Okay. I don't know. Beep, beep, beep. All right. It's a stock female character who survives to defeat or evade after the other characters have been killed and who is typically portrayed as intelligent, serious, cautious, and chaste. So like Katniss? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think that's kind of a silly, like, that that's an official term. (laughs) Final girl. Final girl. Yeah, that is... (laughs) Okay. I know. Yeah, this if is definitely like lists, internet speak. I know. Yes. If you look at these lists too much, it gets depressing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're still at two to one. Okay, mononym. If you know roots. Root. Like synonym, homonym. So it's a one word, one meaning? Yes, it's but it's used in a specific context. Mm, no idea. Trisha? I got nothing. I'll give you a hint. Madonna. Rihanna. Oh, when you go by one word. Yes. When you go yes. by one word. Yes. You don't, you're not a first name, last right, name. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Last two. Parasocial. Paris or para? para. P-A-R-A. Social. Doesn't para have something to do with hands? Like paraplegic. Um, two. Social. Very social. Two, mm, I don't know. You, you have a shade of para in, in two, but parasocial means designating a relationship characterized by the one-sided, 
unreciprocated sense of intimacy felt by a viewer, fan, or follower for a well-known or prominent figure, typically a media celebrity. Like Swifties? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> when you said one-sided, I was like, do you hear how sad this is? <laughs> I know. She doesn't know you. <laughs> Hopefully, we don't have any parasocial going on in our listenership. (laughs) That it's only a healthy one-sided relationship. No, I'm kidding. It is definitely not (laughs) one-sided. Okay, final, final word. This is worth 10,000 points. So whoever gets this wins. Okay. Okay. (laughs) The term is porch pirate. Oh, someone who steals packages off your porch. Your Amazon. <laughs> they steal your Amazon. You got it, and you both tied. Trisha, so you both. Got- Trisha was first. <laughs> okay, we'll give it to Trisha. Fame and, she was started. Fame at first. and glory. Good job. That was Yay! great. <laughs> so we're putting slang in the Oxford Dictionary now. Yeah. I guess it's slang, and then it's language, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if people. Back in 1888, getting those A volumes. Oh, I thought. And we're like, this word made it in. Can you believe it? The slang. Yeah, probably so. (laughs) Probably so. For sure. There was much outrage. (laughs) There's there's the long section in Les Mis of Argo, which was a looked (laughs) down upon, you know, slang. And it's like, no, this is just language. This is just language changing. Okay. That's a whole rabbit trail. (laughs) Well, listeners, thank you for joining us. Please go to our Facebook group and find the post on this episode for this book and let us know what you thought about the book. What did you think about thinking about words and language and these themes that Trisha has mentioned? We would love to hear your thoughts. And until next time, I'm Trisha. I'm Amanda. I'm Elizabeth. And happy reading. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, subscribe to Book Fair Podcast. Join our private Facebook group. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram or email us at chat at bookfairpodcast.com. And you can help us continue to grow. Share an episode with a friend, mention us on social media, and leave a review in your podcast app. We'll see you next Tuesday.